Take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me to a very classic passage of Scripture, Romans chapter 12. Now, the Lord willing, we'll be back in the study of the book of Colossians next week as we also celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, But for now, if you would find those two verses in Colossians chapter 12 that Paul opens that chapter with, verses 1 and 2... And I want to talk this morning on the subject, sanctified living. What's the word sanctified? What's sanctification? Uh, It's really just a a word that refers to Christian growth and being conformed uh, more to the image of Christ. Consecrated living, committed living. And so that's what he speaks of here. Let me ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. And we'll read uh, verses 1 and 2. Uh, Paul writes there, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, What is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, I pray that that our hearts and our minds would be like fertile soil. For the seed of your word to drop in. And Lord, that it would grow and bear fruit that would bring you honor and glory. Lord, help us to honestly look at our lives this morning in light of the glorious salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. Do our lives exemplify that? Do our lives exemplify the new birth? And do we show the fruit of the Spirit? Or are we still reflecting the deeds of darkness? Lord, we know that you said that we're to be salt and light in this world. And if we have any hope of doing that, we've got to look more like Jesus. And so, Father, I pray that you would take these words of the Apostle Paul, that your Holy Spirit, just as he inspired them, that he would illumine our hearts now and change our lives. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 19, we see a very touching story there about a very small man. His name, of course, is Zacchaeus. Not only was Zacchaeus a small man, but we know that he was a very hated man. You see, Zacchaeus was a tax collector. And not only was he a tax collector, but the Bible says that he was a head or a chief tax collector. Now, tax collectors were Jews who had sold out to Rome and they were considered as traitors to their own people. They not only charged you the tax that you owed, but on top of that, they inflated the cost. 
Anything above what was due to Rome, you could pocket and Rome would look the other way. Rome did not care just as long as Rome got their cut. And so tax collectors cheated people by telling them that they owed more than they actually did. And so they were extortionists. Many of them became very wealthy at the, ex- at the expense of their own countrymen. Now without a doubt, Zacchaeus is a man under conviction. As, as we think about that story in Luke 19, he's a man under conviction. He has heard about Jesus and Jesus is passing through his town that day. There were massive crowds around Jesus and being short, little Zacchaeus did all that he could really do. He climbed up into a sycamore tree so he could get a better look at Christ. Well fortunately we know the rest of the story and it is a story that had a happy ending. Jesus tells Zacchaeus to come down out of the sycamore tree that he's going to Zacchaeus' house that day and somewhere in the course of the day Zacchaeus comes to faith in Jesus Christ. Now we're not told the details of his conversion only that it happened. And we're shown the results of his conversion. Zacchaeus plans to repay all of the money that he has stolen from people and he's going to make restitution. In fact, he's going to do more than make simple restitution. He vows, in fact, to pay fourfold what he has stolen uh, from others. Now folks, I think there's a tremendous linkage in that story and in the verses that we read today out of Romans 12. You see, like Luke 19, we're being told here in Romans 12 what the result of salvation is to be. There is a change that has been performed in our hearts by God and that change uh, is to affect everything that we do with our lives. You see, there's to be the fruit of salvation. A saved man is to look differently and think and act differently than the average lost man in the world. And we're not supposed to succumb to all the the peer pressure around us to be just like the world. We are to be offered up to God as living sacrifices who look very much different than the world around us. Put simply, we're to be engaged in sanctified living. As we come to Romans chapter 12, we know that Paul has been talking about doctrine in the, in the first eight chapters of the book of Romans. He's been discussing this glorious salvation that we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he's answered the question about Israel and their unbelief in chapters 9 through 11. But now as he gets into chapter 12, he he turns his attention to talking about right living. 
In other words, knowing right doctrine is not to be an end in and of itself. Right doctrine is to produce right living. It certainly matters what you believe. But then you have to take what you believe and you have to translate it into life. Doctrine has to result in right ethics or right living. No wonder the Swiss theologian Karl Barth called Christian ethics the great disturbance. In other words, if your Christian beliefs haven't radically changed the way that you live, then there's something desperately wrong with your Christianity. Now to help us see even more clearly what Paul is speaking of here, I want you to turn with me uh, back to chapter 1 for a moment. Turn with me back to chapter 1 because in chapter 1 what Paul is going to show us there is uh, what the unbeliever's mind and body looks like. The mind and body of the unbeliever and then we're going to see in chapter 12 how that's contrasted with what he's saying here. In chapter 1 he says beginning in verse 18, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what, we, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Again, notice what he says about the thinking of the unbeliever. They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. Now he's talking about their bodies, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature and the men like Likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men with men committing shameless acts and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so he's described there the mind and the body of the unbeliever. And here again in chapter 12, he's going to talk about the mind and the body of the believer and what that looks like. 
Now what we're going to see here is that a life of surrender to God and a life of radical change is the only fitting response to God's grace. Now let's see how that develops here. First of all this morning I want you to notice with me an offering involving dedication. An offering involving dedication. He says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. We are to make a holy presentation of ourselves to God. One commentator gives a much needed word here. F.F. Bruce says this sacrifice is contrasted with that in the Old Testament and that it is not the life of another as in the case of a lamb but it is your life. It is my life. He goes on to say, let's keep in mind those sacrifices were also given to atone for sin. Now that, that, now that the ultimate sacrifice for sin has been given when Christ offered himself, no other sacrifice for sin is needed. But in light of that ultimate sacrifice, what should a Christian offer? He should offer himself. In gratitude. I want you to think about this for a moment. An Old Testament priest would offer up an animal, a dead animal. But the Bible says in the New Covenant we are all priests. Peter calls us a kingdom of priests. We are to figuratively walk up to the altar and we are to give ourselves. I want you to think of something else here too. In the Old Testament, sacrifice was at the very heart of temple worship. Well, the New Testament points out that we are now God's temple and sacrifice is still at the very heart of worship. But it is the sacrifice of yourself. So sacrifice is still at the heart of worship, but the sacrifice is you. It's not a goat, it's not a sheep, it's not a bull or some other animal, it is you. And he says here such a sacrifice is motivated by nothing short of the mercies of God. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore brothers by the mercies of God. Mercies is plural indicating how abundant God's mercies really are. It is the right and the reasonable thing to do in light of God's redeeming grace and mercies that we would offer ourselves to Him. Now in the book of Romans, Paul has been talking about the mercies of God. He points out in those early chapters that sinners are justified by the grace of God in Christ. We were guilty. And being guilty, we were deserving of death and hell. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. 
Yet the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. In such a state, chapter 4 says that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us. And and chapter 5 goes on to say about that, that because of Christ's righteousness being imputed to us, we have access to God, and, and not only access to God, but we have peace with God. And then in chapter 8 he points out that we have been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and we are led of the Spirit and we're now adopted into God's family and we can cry out, Abba, Father, we have a relationship with God. And so what Paul is saying is that in light of those mercies such a sacrifice that he is writing of here is the fitting and the appropriate thing to do I want you to think with me about where you were before you were saved think about what your life may have been like and contrast that with your life now and the peace that I trust that you have I want you to stop and ponder the depths of sin that God saved you out of. And God didn't have to do that. There is not some law in the universe that bound God's hands, that forced him, that said he had to reach down in love and grace and save you. He only did so as an act of his grace and mercy. And he's counting on the fact as he writes these words that he is writing to folks who are reasonable and intelligent enough creatures to see this. And so he is appealing to logic rather than simply giving a a, a naked command and nothing more than that. Well, let's look at it. What are are some bullet points? What are some things that we could say? What are some different dimensions that we could use or, or say to describe this offering that he is asking us to make? First of all, it is to be a permanent offering. He says, I'm appealing to you to present. And the tense that he uses there, he is showing that that it is both a one-time and an ongoing thing. It is to be a permanent offering of ourselves to God. We are to die daily. And yet each believer is being asked here to draw a line in the sand and make a decision about who is going to be in control of his or her life. And it is a no turning back type sacrifice it's to be a permanent offering it's like what Jesus talked about at the end of Luke 9 when that one young man came up to him and said I'll follow you wherever you go and and Jesus said foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head and Jesus said no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back or looking around is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. It is to be a permanent, no turning back type sacrifice. Now folks, what if every man and woman born again offered this kind of dedication? What if every one of us were to say, 
come what may, in my thought life, in my finances, in my relationships, in my service to God, there is going to be no retreat. I am going to give God 100%. What would happen if we lived with that kind of consecration? Brothers and sisters, that's exactly what he's asking us to do. What are your weaknesses? Lay them on the altar. What are your strengths? Lay them on the altar. What is your spiritual gift? Lay that on the altar. What about your trials and your burdens? Lay all of that on the altar too. In other words, everything that is you, present that, lay that on the altar to God. It is also to be a personal offering. He says, I beseech you, brethren, to offer your bodies. He's speaking to the church, but it is a decision that he is calling on every member of the body of Christ to make. You know, so oftentimes we think in terms of what we receive from God. But that's upside down thinking. He's saying rather we need to think about what we present to God. Your receiving will be based upon what you present. And Paul said you give of yourself. It is to be a personal presentation. Nobody else can do that for you. It's kind of like Joshua told the children of Israel as they were going into the promised land. And, and he stood there, uh, there at the mountain in that valley between those two mountains. And he said, choose you this day whom you're go- going to follow. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's personal like that. You present your bodies. It is to be a physical offering. He says, present your bodies. And the body here we know stands for the entire life. The whole man. Now Paul may be combating the Greek view of life here. Which divided up life between the body and the soul. And the Greeks tended to diminish the body. They said, Soma, Sema, Esten. That is, the body is a tomb. And their goal was to be free of the body. And they only gave attention to the spirit. Now, I've got a personal theory why I think some of them uh, segregated their spiritual lives this way. They did so in order so that they could say, you can have your spirituality while doing whatever you want to do with your body. And consequently, they felt you could be very immoral with your body. But that's not what the Bible says. The Bible points out that our bodies are a gift from God, and so we We are to offer our bodies back to God. We're not simply to say, Lord Jesus, come into my heart. 
but it's the attitude, Lord Jesus, come in and take control of all of my life. Not just my heart, but all of me. Transform all of me. Transform my body too. You see, here's where some of that great disturbance happens. When when you look back at chapter 3, in addition to what we read a moment ago out of chapter 1, what do you find in chapter 3? In verses 13 and following of that chapter, Paul is describing a man who, who is still lost in his depravity. And he says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness and their feet are swift to shed blood and their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they've not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. So what's Paul saying there? In, in our lost condition we do all of the wrong things with our bodies. Whether it's our eyes whether it's our tongues, whether any, any part of us, we do the wrong things with our bodies. But once we're redeemed, Paul is saying, it's, it's like that, that same body that once was, was guilty of the sins of unrighteousness, we are to lay our bodies on the altar to God and say, God, now I want my body, every single part of me, on the altar to you that I would now live for your glory. And so present all of yourself, your body. It's to be a perpetual offering. It's to be a living sacrifice, he says here. In the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was made, it was killed. And one day, we may be killed for our faith. Who knows? We may be martyrs and we may have to die for Jesus. A lot of people around the globe are doing that today. But until then, the challenge is that you and I now would do what? That we would live. That we would be living sacrifices. And then a final thing I think we could say about this offering that he's asking us to make here. It is to be a pure offering. It is to be holy. That is, we are to be set apart for God. Because we now belong to God and we are to live for His purposes. That's what it means to be holy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, Do you not know that your body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price. Therefore, you are to glorify God in your body. We're to be holy because God is holy. Like father, like child, there's to be a family resemblance. Now folks, I don't want you to miss what he says about this type of dedication or offering of yourself. He says, such an offering that is reasonable and willing is acceptable to God. It is pleasing to God. It is desired by God. Think about it this way. In the Old Testament, a sacrifice would be rejected by God if it were not the proper kind of sacrifice. For example, I think about what was going on in the books of Hosea. Haggai and Malachi. 
They had come back from exile and and they were to rebuild the temple and rebuild the land. And and as they came back to the land, they did not get busy and do that. They were giving attention to their own stuff. They were rebuilding their homes and businesses, but they left the temple in ruins. And then after they finally finished the temple, they left the city walls in ruins. And and in, in the whole process as they were doing this, they were bringing to God the leftovers. That's all they were giving to God, the leftovers in their lives, the crumbs of their lives. And you remember what God told them? He said, I will not receive this type of sacrifice from your hands. It is not acceptable to me. They were not giving the best of who they were and what they had. And God said, it is not acceptable. And so God rejected them. Well, Paul is saying here in Romans 12 that that when we put God first and when we offer ourselves in this type of dedicated offering that he's been speaking of here, it will be acceptable to God and it will be well-pleasing in his sight. And he says such a presentation is our spiritual worship or our reasonable act of worship. Think of what Paul is saying there. We think of worship as something we simply do in here on Sunday mornings. And certainly it is. But he is saying all of your life, everything about your life is part of your worship to God. What you do in the morning. What you do this week at work. How you spend your money. How you, uh, how you relate to people. What you watch. The way you speak, all of that, Paul is saying, is your offering to God. All of that is part of your worship. Like he said in Colossians 3, 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of Jesus Christ. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything. Well, secondly, I want you to see this morning an offering involving transformation. An offering involving transformation. He says in verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We are to be sold out to God we're to be sold out to his plan and if that's the case what is it that we're going to see what will this kind of offering look like in our lives well we're going to see a transformation and there's two aspects to this transformation there's the negative side and there's the positive side The negative and the positive. What's the negative? He points out here that as far as the negative, there is to be what? There is to be a refusal to compromise. A refusal to compromise. He says, do not be conformed to this age. 
I like what J.B. Phillips, how he translates this. He says, do not be squeezed into the world's mold. There is this age and there is the age to come. Paul tells the Philippians in Philippians 3.20, Our citizenship is in heaven from which we await a Savior. And so we are to live in this age by the standards of the age to come. Because this age and everything belonging to it is passing away. And so the challenge for the Christian is that we will not buy into the ways of the world. We won't buy into the views of the world. As Paul said to the Colossians, he said, If you've been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Folks, your challenge and my challenge is that we have to live in the world but not be of the world. Paul said to the Corinthians, that which is seen is temporal. That which is unseen is eternal. We are to live for the eternal. And so the challenge for the Christian is to use the things of the world without being conformed to the world's patterns. I think of Daniel, how Daniel got in that foreign land and, and they were trying to make a Babylonian disciple out of him. And chapter 1 verse 8 of the book of Daniel says, Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself. He was a man who was not going to be squeezed into the world of the Babylonians. It's always been that way for God's people. Back in the book of Leviticus, when they were going into the new land, God told the children of Israel through Moses, He said, when you get into the land and, and all of these inhabitants have not been driven out yet, you are going to be tempted to be like them and be like the nations around you, but you are not to be like them because you belong to me. You are my chosen possession you are mine. And so they were to be different. They were not to conform to the ways of the Canaanites. Just like they were not to have conformed to the ways of the Egyptians. Folks, God's people are, are to be different than the people of the world. Don't blend in or go along to get along. Could you imagine either Moses or Joshua saying to the Israelites, when, when we come into Canaan, we need to go along to get along and blend in as much as possible. Can you imagine them saying that? Absolutely not. I want to ask you this morning, where is your life too much like the world? Let's be honest, we're all too much like the world. We think too much like the world. We blend in too much like the world. And oftentimes we don't stand out enough. We want to be accepted. We want everybody to like us. We want to blend in. But the Bible says the Christian life is to stand out, not blend in. 
Now, I'm certainly not talking about a holier-than-thou attitude. I'm talking about adorning the gospel. The Bible says we are to adorn the gospel. Our lifestyle is to match up what we say we believe. In what you watch, in what you listen to, in what you do, are you just like the world around you? It's a daily struggle, folks. We have two masters. We have the old man and the new man. The old man still wants to be fed. The Bible says we've got to starve the old man. It's like what Paul's writing about in Romans chapter 7. And I know that's a debated portion of scripture. But I happen to believe Paul's talking about the Christian life. Paul says, I don't do the things that I want to do. And I end up doing the very things that I don't want to do. Oh, wretched man that I am. I think that's a pretty good description of the Christian life, don't you? I don't want to do what I do. And I do what I don't want to do. Now don't misunderstand. Paul is not saying we've got to be stuck there all the time. Because he goes into the very next passage. And says that fortunately we have the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. And because of the power of the Holy Spirit living within us. There is a power greater in us than that that is in the world. But the point is, there's this daily struggle to compromise. Daily struggle to compromise. You know, I think one of the evidences of conversion is that you're engaged in this battle. You see, the lost man leaps into sin and loves it. He doesn't worry so much about the struggle. I think one of the biggest areas today of compromise in the church has to do with our attitudes about sexuality. We've seen a tidal wave in that over the last five to ten years. More and more we're being pressured by the world to receive what the world says we ought to be thinking about marriage and sexuality. You know, Kevin's going to be talking tonight in a three-week segment uh, about a movement called Progressive Christianity. Very dangerous movement. Uh, Somebody says in Progressive Christianity, you know what, I, I I know the Bible says such and such about marriage and family, for example. But I know a guy at work who's a practicing homosexual and at the same time he seems to be a very dedicated Christian. And so maybe the Bible is not right. Maybe it's okay. That's what progressive Christianity is doing. Well, is it okay? Is it consistent with biblical Christianity? Certainly not if we hold to a high view of Scripture. I think also of Rob Bell's book. Rob Bell is a pastor in the country. He wrote a book, Love Wins, where he is denying that hell is a, a literal place of eternal judgment. And he's reinterpreted the Bible on, on that. 
Folks, it, it seems to me that those are precisely some of the kinds of compromises that the Apostle Paul is saying to the church that you and I cannot be engaged in. Not if we're going to be biblical Christians. You see, conforming to this world is a very deceptive thing. If we do it all to go along and get along and make our lives easier for now, what's going to happen when ultimately we've got to stand before the judgment seat of Christ? And so he's saying we dare not compromise with this world. And that's part of the transformation that's got to be happening in you and me. That any patterns in the world that you identify that are not in keeping with God's word, you've got to turn away from those patterns. You've got to allow this transforming uh, process for God to give you a new mindset in those areas so that you're not compromised. And then the positive half of this transformation, there's got to be this renewal of the mind. He says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. How does that happen? That happens as we dwell on God's word now. As we feed our minds on God's word because we've grown up thinking like the world before we were saved, we were thinking like the world, enjoying the world, what the world said about everything. But now as believers, we're to be meditating on God's word day and night. And as we're meditating on God's word day and night, God is using his word to transform our thinking to bring about a renewal in our thinking and as we're changed in our thinking we'll be changed in our lives and notice what Paul says the reward is here if we will do this if we will allow this transformation to take place we will be able to prove what is the good and pleasing and perfect will of God People say, I I want God to lay out a road map of my life with his will. It doesn't work that way. He says, you've got to to put in uh, the effort, everything he's talking about earlier in verses 1 and 2. You've got to offer yourself this dedicated offering and, and no compromise and being renewed in your thinking. It's only after you do all of that that you're able to prove what the will of God is. See, we want it automatic. And this passage is saying knowing the will of God is not automatic. Knowing the will of God is the fruit of doing everything else that he's spoken of here in verses 1 and 2. And so I want to ask you this morning, is that transformation taking place? Are you identifying patterns in the world that you need to turn away from and not compromise with? And are you renewing your mind with Scripture? Is that transformation happening? As I mentioned to you last week, it's not going to be automatic. These are actions you've got to take and I've got to take. 
But as we take these actions, God is promising he'll do some pretty amazing and wonderful things in our lives. And we'll end up knowing the will of God. And the will of God, he says here, will not be restrictive, but it will be good and pleasing and perfect. Isn't that great? Sanctified living. Again, it doesn't just happen. It doesn't just happen. And so the question is, are you yielding your life and am I yielding my life so that this process will be happening in us? I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning. As you do so, every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to ask you right now that if you've never made that wholehearted, no-strings-attached kind of commitment to the Lord that you would do so now. Lord, I offer myself to you and I pray. I pray that what you did at Calvary would count for me, that I would be born again, born from above. Lord, change my life, and here my life is. I've given my life to the world for far too long, and now I want to give it to you. I also want to ask you, what determines how you think? Does the internet, or your friends, or your co-workers, or does God's Word Make a commitment that you want God to shape your worldview. God help me to allow in a better way this transformation, this renewal to take place. You've got to present yourself. You've got to read your Bible. You've got to spend time daily with God in prayer. You've got to allow him to be doing this molding and shaping on you. And he will. He will. Are there some areas of your life that you know you're you're already conformed to the world's ways? And you need to repent. You need to come back to Christ in that area of your life. Father, I thank you for this call that you're giving your people to sanctified living. That we will be a different people in this world than we were before. Lord, you've not called us out of the world yet. You've called us to stay and to be shining lights. But in order to be shining lights, we've got to deal with any darkness in us. God, through the power of your Spirit, help us day by day to yield to you. God, I pray that when people see us, that they would see the amazing work that you're doing in us. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.